witness. And uh, we've also seen that uh, as the rest of the book has gone, chapter 8 does likewise. Okay? Every little bit away, he kind of introduces a new angle. He introduces a new thought. He, he challenges us in a different way. And so that's happening here. In the following chapters, they expound upon it. Maybe add a little bit more meat to it, shall we say. And that's what transpires here with chapter number 8. And so I want you to look, verse number 1, if you will, with me. And uh, verse number 1 of chapter 8, notice what it says. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Let's just stop there. And I like that. That's kind of a, a good segue uh, that he presents for us here in verse number 1. Okay? You remember that there is a, there is a word... Okay, I'm going to try to challenge your thinking here or your recall your memory, okay? Uh, there is a word that we had talked about was used at least three times in Hebrews chapter 7. And uh, it's actually used 13 times in the book of Hebrews. And it's used here again in chapter 8 and a couple times likewise. And if we were going to talk about something that kind of sums it up, or, and the word sum there literally means the main point, it kind of, uh, what's the main thrust? And that's what he's kind of saying. Let's, let's remind ourselves what the main thrust is, and going forward, here's some more meat to that. And that word is the word better, the word better. We saw it in several places. Verse 22, you saw it there. That was probably the last instance, or one of the last instances of chapter 7. By so much was Jesus made surety of a better testament, of a better testament. Verse number 6, we'll get there in a second. It likewise here in chapter 8 has that word twice in it. And so that is really, if we could put it, the theme, right? It's better. Uh, The great point uh, for our consideration is that Jesus Christ is a better high priest. What we just noticed was because of what? Well, first of all, it's because of he's from the order of Melchizedek. He's not of Aaron, and we saw all the support for that in the last couple chapters. Now he's going to go on and speak more to the reality of that. And so here's the point. We see it in our outline, if you will, or our title. Okay? Another word for better is what? Superior. He's superior. Okay? And Christ is superior. And so if we're going to say the word better is equal to or like the idea that Christ is superior. He's superior to the Old Testament. He's superior, as we have seen, to angels and Aaron and Moses. He is superior to all these things, and that is the continued thrust and the point here in Hebrews. And the, uh, the encouragement is, and the challenge is, why would you choose anything inferior? For the Jew, it would be, why would you choose Judaism? That old set of laws and sacrifices and offerings where you had to go to a high priest and he had to offer a sacrifice for you? Well, why would you choose to continue under a law that only revealed your sinfulness that could do nothing for it? Why would you stay under that? Why would you remain for that which is inferior? Okay, To the Gentile, why would you continue living an inferior life? Why would you settle for an inferior eternity apart from Jesus Christ? Here's what Christ offers. Here is how he can change your life now and how he can change your eternity when you put your faith and trust in him. So the author of Hebrews is challenging you and I. Here's something better. Here's something superior. Why settle for anything else? He goes on to add to the description of that and it really alliterates itself here in chapter number 8. Would you look with me at verse number 2? Notice the statement here. We'll, we'll go back to the rest of verse 1 in a moment. But look at verse number 2, Hebrews chapter number 8, if you will. A minister of the sanctuary. That's referencing the high priest mentioned in verse 1, which is Jesus Christ. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Okay, look at verse number 6. Here's the second part of chapter 8, the second main point. But now hath he attained a more excellent ministry, 
by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. So you see, really, the, t- the twofold point. Number one, he's a minister in a better sanctuary, and what we'll talk in subsequent weeks, uh, or next week, uh, well, actually, we have a missionary next week, so it won't be next week, but in future weeks, we'll talk about the reality, as verse number six says, he is a, a mediator of a better covenant. A mediator of a better covenant. Did you notice in verse 6 the usage of that word better twice? Better promise, better covenant is what we have in Jesus Christ. And so those are the two main points here in, in uh, this chapter. Look back now at verse number 1. Let's get into this first point if we might. That Jesus Christ is a minister in a better sanctuary. Verse number 1, notice what he says. We'll read the remainder of it. Now these things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. Okay? So this is an introduction. In fact, we'll see in chapters 9 and 10 and 11, these thoughts are continued. This is kind of to whet our appetite in chapter 8. Things we'll look at in, the, in those chapters. But as he introduces it, there's two things immediately that he says sets Jesus Christ apart. From the high priest of the Old Testament, from anything in the law, in the, the tabernacle, in the temple, here's a couple things that set him apart from every other priest that they've ever known. The first is this, uh, letter A, the place where he sits. The place where he sits that we just read of, okay? Mentioned here, as we said, the last part of verse 1, who is set on the right hand of the throne. Set on the right hand of the throne. Again, one of those truths that we see happens throughout this epistle. We first read about it, you remember back in Hebrews chapter number 1, almost a year ago. And uh, when we started our study in Hebrews, he says the exact same thing. Then he repeats it. He's talking about the comparison to angels, if you remember, in chapter number 1. He says, listen, who has said, you sit on my right hand? Has he said that to angels? Has he said that to anybody else? He's only said that to Jesus Christ. You'll sit on my right hand. God the Father has said that. And then we continue in chapter 8, obviously the one before us, and then later on we'll see it in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12, and then the last occurrence of it is in Hebrews chapter 12 in verse 2. The contrast presented in this simple statement is quite profound. It is both straightforward and stark, if I might describe it as such. It is showing you and I, describing Jesus Christ as sitting down in heaven. He's sitting on the right hand of the Father. And you say, what's the significance to saying that Jesus Christ is sitting? Well, you and I have looked at it before. In the Old Testament, no priest has ever done that while ministering. He's never sat down. In fact, we think about it, there was no seat provided for the priest as they went about their ministry, whether that be the tabernacle, whether that be the temple. There's a no allusion to a priest in the Old Testament sitting down, having a seat anywhere, certainly not a throne, anywhere in that. They simply did what? They went in and out. Why is that? Because the Old Testament priest's job was what? Never done. It was never finished. They would offer one sacrifice on a day for sins, and they'd have to come offer it another day. The Day of Atonement didn't happen just one time in an entire existence. It happened every year. They'd have to go in. They'd have to go out. They'd have to go in. They'd have to go out. It was a continual reality. That is a huge difference. So when you and I read that Jesus, read that Jesus Christ is sitting down on the right hand of God, it means much more and much greater than first, uh, in, uh, the implications tell you and I as Gentiles. For a Jew, they would have immediately thought, whoa, whoa, a priest doesn't sit down. A priest is always at work. A priest has got to be ready the next day, ready for the next person's sacrifice. And go offer another sacrifice. Go offer another sacrifice. Go offer another sacrifice. And yet that is not what Christ 
has done. He's sitting on the right hand of the Father, as the verse says. Now, the other, one of the other occurrences there is Hebrews chapter number 10. And so let's turn there. Just two chapters over. I want you to see Hebrews chapter 10. We'll look specifically at verse 11 and 12. Would you notice the contrast that's presented for you and I? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. Okay? All right, here we go. And every priest, what's the next word? You say it, I'll read it again. When we come to that third word in verse number 11, you say it with me. Let's just prove to somebody sitting next to you that you're not asleep, okay? Here we go. And every priest standeth. Okay, see the contrast immediately? And every priest standeth daily. That's another comparison. It's not done. He's daily doing this. Standeth daily, ministering, offering. What's the next word? Oftentimes, that's a good compound word, isn't it? Many times over, he is continually offering, oftentimes, the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. You talk about depressing. You talk about discouraging. His offering, those offerings can never take away sins. Look at verse 12. But this man, speaking of Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, what does he do? Sat down. He sat down on the right hand of God. It's a great contrast. It's a great comparison. He says, listen, you want to know why Jesus Christ, your Savior, is a better high priest than you've ever known, than history has ever known? Let me tell you, it's because he's sitting on the right hand of the Father right now. What's the the thrust or the great point of that? Well, the Old Testament priest, you see it on your outline, ministered while standing. Why? Because their work of offering sacrifice was never finished, oftentimes, daily. He had to continue offering it. It was never good. It could never take away sins. But Jesus Christ, comparatively and contrastly, Christ ministers while sitting down, even now, because he's offered the sacrifice once and forever. His ministry of sacrifice is done. Now his ministry of interceding on our behalf as a high priest is active. We'll see more about that in a moment. We'll, we'll talk more about it. But as far as salvation is concerned, he has taken a seat. Why? Because what did he say on the cross? It is finished. Great. Yeah, it's finished. It's done. I, it's complete. This, this part of my ministry and offering and sacrifice, it is finished. This week, I was studying on a couple things, and I, I came across some who, in my study, of those who, who believe um, that they need to be baptized as an infant, they need to be baptized later on when they have greater understanding. In addition, they have to perform certain sacraments in order to secure their salvation. May I just tell you, that's sad that anyone believes that because it's not true because Jesus Christ said it is finished. And he's sitting down on the right hand of the Father having accomplished everything that needed to be done for salvation. The only thing that's left is for a person to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. There's nothing there about good works. There's nothing there about baptism, uh, being part of salvation. There's nothing else. I was likewise studying this week and I was studying some other folks who, who believe that uh, in order to maintain their salvation, they had to maintain daily good works literally to ensure that they are saved. Can I tell you, my friend, I'm thankful we don't live under that cloud. It is secure in Jesus Christ. He is finished. He is sitting down on the right hand of God. Not because he has to keep offering himself, because when you and I sin or we don't keep up the good works, all right, I've got to offer myself again. No, Christ's offer and sacrifice was once and forever. Once and for all. You see, as I like to put it, my Savior is sitting down because it is a done deal. 
It is a done deal. I like that statement. I'll use it sometimes with one of my children. They want to trade something or do something. I'll say, and then they, they, they want to do it again. They didn't like it after they tried or something like that. I'm like, it's a done deal. Ain't no going back. Ain't no going back. It's a done deal. It's settled. Yeah, you, you, you can't undo it. And so it is true with Jesus Christ and what he has done. Now, you think about that from a Jewish perspective. All of this truth would have shocked them. Yea, I would say it should have thrilled them. To their minds, it was unfathomable that there should be a final sacrifice once and for all. You mean we don't have to go to the temple anymore? You mean we don't have to offer a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement? We don't have to do any of these things? It's a final sacrifice? For them, the idea of a finished work, no more to be done, no more to be added to complete salvation, would have blown their minds in a way, and yet I trust would have thrilled them. No high priest of old was ever able to sit down. No high priest of old was able to ever stop and say, it's all done, it's all finished, no more, no need to offer any more sacrifices. But yet here is Jesus Christ exactly saying in doing that. Important is not just that he sat down, but also where he sat down. You see, Paul again here reaches back to the first chapter. I love how he connects and you see the continuity of a single author through the entire epistle. Back in chapter 1, first few verses, he also spoke of God in terms of this. If you see it here in verse number uh, 1, likewise, he references that Christ is sitting on the right hand of the majesty. The right hand of the majesty. Now, that's a great challenge, a great encouragement. He's sitting on the right hand of the majesty. I love that description of, of God, right? In all his majesty, in all his glory, here's the high priest sitting right next to it, in his presence, literally. We've talked about, just this past Sunday night, the reality of the worthiness of God, and, and we talked about how uh, the fact is that you know, often when the, when the priest um, would go in and uh, there would be a cloud, and we talked about this last week, the cloud in front of the, the Ark of the Covenant from the incense burning and so forth, because there was still somewhat of a separation and uh, looking upon God being in his very presence here it is simply saying that that priest this high priest this better high priest is sitting right next to God the father in heaven in all his glory and majesty that is his position that is his place like no one else this is where he is sitting where we find him you see, the Old Testament high priest could only enter into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, once a year on that Day of Atonement as we've seen. And yet, do you remember what was in the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Testament and the reality of the um, fact that the mercy seat was there. Now let me ask you, was that a seat for the priest? No, the mercy seat was where, between the cherubs and the angels there, that the presence of God, Shekinah glory dwelt. There's no seat for a priest anywhere to sit. In fact, he was, as we have mentioned, will just come in and come out. The mercy seat was for God and God alone. His job was not finished, and yet that's not so with Christ. He has entered heaven upon paying the price of your sins and mine at the cross of Calvary, and he has sit down in the presence of God Almighty, of God the Father, as he is God the Son. See, we know historically and even biblically that what's so special about this right-hand side of God the Father that God the Son is sitting on? Well, the right hand was indicative of, a, of honor. It was a place of honor. It, it was a place of exaltation, of glory, of recognition. It is also a place of power and recognized as such. 
I think one of the greatest descriptions in the Bible of this truth, that it is a place of power and exaltation, a place of honor. Christ himself actually told us this. Notice what he says in Matthew chapter number 26 and verse 64. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power. The right hand of power. And coming in the clouds of heaven. Great description. Now, to stand on the right hand, uh, oh yeah, that was a great place of honor. But to be able to sit on the right hand, oh, that was a greater honor. And that is the description that we have of Jesus Christ. Now, there's also another interesting nuance to this that a Jew might have picked up on. A Jew and their familiarity with some of the ways that Judaism worked might have immediately had their minds triggered. There might have been a thought that popped into their mind as they see and read this description of Jesus Christ sitting on the right hand of the Father. Uh, in their day and in the, the days that in which it was held, they, they might have thought immediately or they might have been led to the thought of a group of Jews who were um, a, a legal council. It was called, and you might remember it, it was called the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was a council, a group of uh, Jewish rulers, and 70 elders were gathered together. And it was a, uh, it was a powerful council um, uh, for the um, uh, reality uh, uh, that it dealt with both civil and religious items and situations and such matters. They would make rulings that were authoritative in their administration and their practicality and their, even judicially their rulings would hold. And so the Sanhedrin was very revered, this group of 70 elders and so forth. We see them mentioned in the, the gospel several times. Jesus Christ had to appear before them and such. And so the Sanhedrin was quite, kind of interesting in many ways and it, it wielded great power. We even from we, what we know of the Gospels in Christ's account or the account of Christ's last days, even while they were under Roman rule, the Sanhedrin held much power. And so they were a powerful group in many ways. And so they were allowed and, and permitted to issue judicial or legal uh, rulings. And so when they would do so, in fact, when there was something that came before them, there would be one of their ruling members that was in charge was put as the judge. And on the left side of this judge, they would pick out a scribe to sit there. They would also pick out a scribe to sit on the right side. Now the scribe on the left side, his responsibility every time was the same thing. He was tasked with writing down the, the writ of um, condemnation. In other words, if someone was found guilty, if someone, uh, they bring the matter before the Sanhedrin, and whether it be civil or whether it be religious, they would hear the case, and the ruling member that would serve as the judge would make a ruling. And if the person brought before was, uh, was guilty, if they were uh, to be condemned in one way or the other, uh, fined, you name it, the person on the left was in charge of writing out uh, that condemnation. Well, the person on the right was a scribe likewise. He was appointed to sit there, and his job was, if something happened during this uh, event and the judgment was made in which they would acquit the person that came, his job was to write or make the writ of acquittal. In other words, if a judgment was passed that said, okay, they're not guilty, they're, they're innocent, and uh, uh, of the charges that have been brought up, they're innocent, they're not guilty, this was the person on the right side that was responsible for writing out that acquittal or that judgment of innocence. Could you imagine a Jewish mind as they think even about the Sanhedrin? And, and for them, that was the ultimate court. In fact, many have compared it to the Supreme Court, but even greater and doing much more. 
So you can imagine for the Jew, that was the, the, the last straw. That was it. That was the greatest group and council and rulings and so forth. Well, in their minds, they would have immediately thought that that right side is a great picture of Jesus Christ on the right side. Was it a place of power? Yes. Was it a place of exaltation? Yes. Was it a place of power and honor? Yes. But it was also a place of mercy. Mercy. And my friends, as that Jew would picture Jesus Christ there being the one who would write out or, shall we say, probably plead the innocence of someone, it's a great picture of what Jesus Christ is doing even today. I often have thought, I sure am thankful that every time the devil, who is the accuser of the brethren, I sure am thankful that every time Satan comes before God Almighty and accuses me because maybe I've committed a sin, I've done something wrong, I haven't done something I ought to do, and Satan accuses me before God Almighty, I sure am thankful that God the Son is sitting there and saying, listen, Father, it's under the blood. He's innocent. He's, he's not guilty. Oh, he may have committed it, but he's, he's already been forgiven that, Father. It's already taken care of. He is, my righteousness has been applied to his account. Uh, he is even now there, sitting on the right hand of God the Father, and he is interceding on our behalf. As we saw in the end of chapter 7, he has the ministry of intercession, something that is truly valuable to you and I in the moment. I think something else that is even more mind-blowing, if we could put it this way, something, even a, a greater picture, if we might say, it's this. Notice this verse in Revelation chapter number uh, 3 and verse 21, something that Jesus Christ himself promises. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Can I tell you, that's a pretty exciting promise, isn't it? For those who were overcome, those who promised Jesus Christ, saying, listen, even as I have sat down in the throne with my Father, so you will sit down with me. And we saw just this past Sunday that promise of reigning with him, and it's a great truth, a great promise you and I can look forward to. Now, those of you who might be a, uh, a biblical scholar, shall we say, yeah, there might have been something you thought of right away. There may have been something that kind of triggered your memory, maybe from your Bible study and your Bible reading. And, and I, I thought of this likewise when going through the passage and so forth, um, that statement that Christ is sitting on the right hand of the Father. Maybe some of you thought about the, the story of Stephen. He was stoned, you remember. He, he preached a great message in Acts chapter 7, and, and uh, it pricked the hearts. In fact, I believe it's verse 54 that talks about that. They, they were pricked to their hearts, and they began gnashing on him with teeth. And you remember how things played out in that story. Immediately, he describes a vision and, and a sight that God gave him. He was able to look up into heaven. In fact, the Bible says the Holy Ghost came upon him. And he had this vision of heaven that is described for you and I, even as they were dragging him out of the city and were about to stone him. Turn with me, if you will. I want you to look with me at Acts chapter 7, will you? Acts chapter 7. Keep your spot here. We'll be right back. Acts chapter 7. Let's look at that story because there's an interesting um, statement that's made that Stephen gives us as he is granted this vision or this glimpse into heaven. Notice what he says. Acts chapter 7, verse 55. You see, verse 54, what I alluded to earlier. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Verse 55. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Now, that's an interesting statement. You say, ah, Pastor Henry, is that a contradiction? 
absolutely not. What I think this is is a beautiful reality of the multifaceted ministry of Jesus Christ. Let me explain. Let's think about it in terms of what both of them represent in a sense, if we might be, might say. Concerning the, the works of salvation, and that is heavily what Paul is describing in the book of Hebrews. Remember, he's speaking to a Jewish audience that is, has relied on the offerings of the Old Testament and such. And so he is picturing Jesus Christ sitting on the right hand of because it is finished. It is done. There's nothing more that needs to be done. He is not a high priest that has to continually offer the sacrifices. That's why he presents him as God the Son, the high priest, who is sitting on the right hand of the Father. When it comes to the work of salvation, it is done. There's no need to do anything else. But as our high priest, who is a helper, aren't you grateful that Jesus Christ is always ready to go into action? He's always ready to to offer, shall we say, aid and help, no matter what it is. In fact, uh, if the time is such, I believe Jesus Christ is always ready to, to welcome a believer home. We read in our scriptures that precious in the eyes of our God and our Savior is the death of a saint. You say, Pastor Henry, what, what gets Jesus Christ up off his throne? Can I tell you what I think it is and what I believe that this passage even talks about? Is when a loved one comes home. My daughters will be coming home. I mentioned this on Sunday, I think, or sometime. I don't know when. But anyway, she's coming home to help out in the wild game dinner. They have a ministry weekend down there at Crown College. And, and uh, I'll use any means or reason to see my daughter. Amen. So she's coming home. She's driving home tomorrow with some uh, friends. If you'd pray for her, they have safety. They're leaving at 3.30 in the morning. So would you pray for them? That God will watch over and protect them. And nonetheless, but I'll tell you right now, if Reagan comes home, if I were at home, I'll probably be at work. But even if she were to come here, and let's just say my wife says, oh, Reagan's here and I'm sitting in a seat. Do you think I'll stay there? Well, if I'm old and decrepit and falling apart, maybe my knee's hurting, but no, I'm not going to stay in my seat. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run to the door. I'm going to throw my arms around her neck and I'm going to hold her close and debate whether I'm letting her go back to school. Amen. Okay, maybe not, but nonetheless, I'm going to love on her, right? Can I just tell you right now, Jesus Christ loves each and every one of us. He loves us so much, friend, that I believe, just as we saw in this picture here, when it comes to the work of salvation, It's all done. He's sitting on the right hand of the Father. But when it comes to the high priest who helps us, aids us, ministers to us spiritually, my my friend, Jesus Christ is as active as he's ever been. And he's welcome to welcome, he's ready to welcome every saint home. Can I just put it this way? And you see the statement here on the outline. As our Redeemer, he is seated. As our Helper, He is standing ready to give us aid in our time of need. To minister grace. We have a high priest who is tempted in all points like as we, and yet without sin. He is ready to to succor us, using that uh, that King James Old English word, succor, to support, to encourage us, to help us. uh, Because he's gone through it all, and he, he knows what we face. That is the high priest that is there interceding on our behalf. Ready to help, ready to aid us. You have such a great high priest, as the passage describes. But what else does verse number one say? That's where he sits. Number two, notice what verse number one says. And you say, well, Pastor Henry, we're spending a long time on chapter one. Maybe it will take five years. We'll see. Okay. Place where he serves, if you'll see it with me. Place where he serves. You notice the end of part verse one. Here's what it says. Okay. 
um, back in Hebrews chapter 8, and, or excuse me, yes, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 1. Notice the description. It says this, You have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty. Where? In the heavens. In the heavens. It's a sanctuary, a temple, a tabernacle in which he serves and ministers, but it's so very different from the one that the Jews knew. They would have known of old of the tabernacle. They would have known of Solomon's temple and even the rebuilding of it. They would have known all aspects and uh, the minutiae and uh, the, the descriptions of the temple, the tabernacle. They knew it well, but this one was much different. Look at verse 2. We read just the first part. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. Now that's a statement. He's saying, listen, he's a minister. He's, a, uh, he's one who is uh, a, a priest of this sanctuary, the true tabernacle. And literally what he is presenting here, he is a superior priest that ministers in a superior sanctuary. Okay? Now, this is just a brief introduction, again, to the future chapters. In fact, chapter number 9, if you were to look ahead, but don't spend too much time there, um, it describes all that's in the temple, all that's in the tabernacle, and uh, its representation, its picture, its typology of Christ and what we have in Him. Because uh, it's also a picture of, uh, of what Christ has already done and is doing in heaven. And we'll get to that in chapter 9. But notice the few points that he makes here, would you? In these last few verses, notice what it is. Number one, we see this. It is a sanctuary set up by God, not by man. It is a sanctuary set up by God, not by man. Look at verse 2, the rest of it. We read the first part, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. Notice the description, which the Lord pitched and not man. I like that, okay? Like pitching of a tent, the pitching of the tabernacle. When God gave the, them the instructions and the pattern in the Old Testament for how the tabernacle ought to be put in, brought up, set down, how it ought to be carried, and everything else, they would have to pitch it. They would have to do it. Solomon came along. David delighted and wanted to build the temple. God would not allow him. He uh, led Solomon, his son, to, to build that first temple. And oh, it was a beautiful thing. And yet it has his name to it because he built it. And there's other subsequent temples likewise and so forth. This one, though, is identified simply as the one that God pitched. He made it alone. This is the one uh, as pictured in heaven and Christ being the priest of it. It's not laid or, or made by sinful man or fallible man. Look at, uh, if you will, number two. It's not only a sanctuary set up by God and not by man, but number two, it is a sanctuary worthy of a superior priest. A sanctuary worthy of a superior priest. Look at verse number 3. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat. We can also read that as somewhere. The, the words there certainly would allow for it, the Greek. Also to offer. Has a place to offer. He, uh, every priest offers sacrifices and gifts. And so therefore, every priest has a place to do that. And so it is with Christ. Where is his sanctuary? It's presented for us as heaven. All earthly priests had an appointed place to minister, to offer those gifts and sacrifices. Our great high priest is appointed to do that, but in the greatest sanctuary ever, and that's in heaven. He's offered already the sacrifice of his blood, and now he's ministering gifts of praise and thanksgiving, and that's ongoing. He's doing it on our behalf. He's helping us to offer those, those gifts of prayers and uh, such, of thanksgiving and praise for our God. Look at verse number four, if you will. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. Okay? It's further description of the separation. He, he is not a priest of the old priesthood. He is not of the Aaronic priesthood as we've seen in chapter 7 and before. Uh, he is a 
priest of the new covenant. He is designated and appointed not by the law as those men were, but by the declaration, as we saw last week, of God himself. He has declared him to be the high priest of this uh, better sanctuary. He alone has a ministry that is now conducted not here on earth as every other priest did, but in heaven. His is a superior sanctuary that's worthy of a superior priest. Last but not least, you see number three here. It is a sanctuary which, of which the earthly tabernacle and temple were but a shadow. Were a shadow. It's better because this is the real thing. Literally, it's what he's saying. Look at verse number five, if you will, with me. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. This is the earthly priest. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For, see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Now there's three words in verse number five that are very much the key words of that verse in this thought. What are they? They're example, they are shadow, and they are pattern. Example, shadow, and pattern. You see them there. You see, when God gave the instructions to Moses to build the, the tabernacle, he warned him. He said, listen, Moses, you've got to make sure it follows the pattern. Okay? I'm going to give you the pattern because this is going to be a picture. It, it, it's going to be an example of the true sanctuary, of the heavenly, heavenly, shall we describe it as such, where God is the high priest. Notice it with the, uh, the encouragement. It's found in Exodus chapter 25. Actually, it's found in several passages. Let me give you two example ones. Exodus chapter 25 and verse number 9 says this, According to all that I show thee, this is God speaking to Moses, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. You better make sure you make it. The actual quote that we have here is from Exodus chapter 40, or chapter 25, verse 40. Notice it. And look that thou make them after their pattern which was showed thee in the mount. You see, the words example and pattern, they, they speak to this earthly tabernacle, then later the temple, to be models or examples of how did verse number two put it? And I'm sorry, I think I put verse number one in your outline. It's supposed to be verse number two there. Of the true sanctuary, the true tabernacle. You see how verse number two describes it as such. Okay, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. I love the word true there. Why? It's not speaking of the idea of true and false. Is one right and one dead wrong? No, it's speaking about the idea of one that is real, the real thing. The real and a copy. A facsimile. A picture of something else. Not the original, not the, the real thing. It's a representation of it. But the real thing is the immeasurably still more elaborate and majestic than that which is the picture of the shadow of it. Hence, the tabernacle and the temple of old were a type Literally, I love the terminology here. You see it in this verse. I think it's a great use of the English word by our King James translators. It is a shadow. A shadow. Now, have you ever had a child who likes to step on your shadow? Did it hurt? Well, it shouldn't. If it did, you've got more bigger problems than that. Okay? That doesn't hurt, right? Why, why doesn't that hurt? Well, because to a shadow... There is no substance in and of itself. There's no independent existence or meaning apart from the real thing. 
I love the, the point of the author here. He is delicately and gingerly, much like the surgeon's scalpel, he's dissecting and tearing apart uh, what a Jew would hold so tightly. Uh, their priests and Moses and angels and, and their sacrificial judicial system or, or uh, their, uh, their offerings and their priesthood. And he, he's just tearing it apart little by little by the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Not tearing it apart to say, look, that's terrible. No, no, no. Just showing that was good as a shadow, as an example. But can I tell you how much better the real thing is? Can, can I just share with you, Paul says, can I, can I just show you how much greater and how much better, how much superior the real thing is? That's what is being presented for you and I in the passage. And I love his terminology here. The shadow, certainly, that example, that type can be a helpful thing, but it's never as good as the real thing. And the question then comes to this, why would you settle for anything else? Why would you settle for anything less than what is superior? The tabernacle and the temple of old were merely a picture, a shadow of what was to be found in Jesus Christ alone, his ministry who he is as not only our redeemer our savior but as our high priest a role in ministry that he is even today performing the sacrifice aspect is done it's it's taken care of at the cross of calvary and now my friend today he is simply interceding on our behalf he is ministering to us much much grace so here's the question you see at the end of our outline so why would you choose to walk in the shadow when you can walk in the light of the sun. That's really what he's asking the Jewish people to whom he's writing. Remember, some are Jews who are unsaved. Some are Jews who have gotten saved and they're tempted to go back to Judaism. He says, why, why would you go back and walk under a shadow when you can walk in the light of the sun? He is the light. Aren't you thankful tonight you know the light? You've come to trust in him and put your faith in him. For we have such a great high priest. And my friend, in him, all things are better. They're the best. We'll pick up in the rest of chapter 8 in a couple weeks here. And looking forward to it as we continue. Brother John, if you'd 